0: In this part of Samuel, the Ark of the Covenant, which is the throne of God, has gone into exile into Philistine territory and now will make a new exodus, returning home to the promised land of Israel. Now, let's review a little bit here. Why does the Ark go into exile? The Ark goes into exile because the people of Israel deserved exile for their sin. And here God is graciously taking the punishment they deserve as a substitute. He bears the curse of the covenant they broke by going into exile on their behalf. Now, that does not mean the people of Israel get off scot-free. They're still disciplined by the Lord. Even though God takes their curse, he still has lessons to teach them, even very painful lessons. And that's really one of the keys to this chapter, Salvation is by the free grace of God. Salvation is due to the sheer mercy of God and nothing else. But salvation by grace does not mean we can take God lightly. Salvation by grace does not mean we can treat God lightly. Rather, salvation by the grace of God leads us to the fear of God. Salvation by the grace of God leads us to be in awe and wonder at this God. Grace and fear go together. God's grace to us and our fear of this great God, they go together. Psalm 130, for example, says, With you there is forgiveness, O Lord, that you may be feared. Forgiveness leads to the fear of God. What kind of awesome God can forgive sins? And when you look at the links to which He's gone to forgive our sins, you see why this God is to be feared. In the hymn Amazing Grace, we sing, Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. In in Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12 really summarizes the grace of new covenant worship by saying we should serve God acceptably with reverent and godly fear. See, grace does not mean we view God as the great teddy bear in the sky or an overly indulgent heavenly Santa Claus. No one fears a teddy bear. No one's in awe of a teddy bear. No one fears Santa Claus of that sort, that kind of heavenly indulgent figure. But God, the God with whom we have to do, the true and living God, the God of the scripture, this God must be feared. This God, when we really see him for who he is, it evokes awe and wonder in our hearts. And in this passage, we see that. In this passage, the goodness and the grace of God are there. The goodness and grace of God teach his people to fear him this gracious God is the fearful God and if you don't fear God if you're not in awe before this God you really haven't grasped the grace of the gospel And that's what we see in this story. I think C.S. Lewis has captured this really well, uh, this dynamic really well, in his children's story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from the Chronicles of Narnia, which I know many of you are familiar with. You kids are probably very familiar with it, especially the character Aslan. Aslan is a lion. Uh, In the story, he is the Christ figure. And when the children who have entered into the land of Narnia are first hearing about Aslan, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are describing Aslan for them. And Mrs. Beaver describes him this way. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. And so then Lucy, one of the children, asks, then he isn't safe? And Mr. Beaver exclaims, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you the end of the story, towards the very end of the story, Mr. Beaver sums things up well uh, this way. He says, one day you'll see Aslan and another day you won't. He doesn't like being tied down. He'll often drop in, only you mustn't press him. He's wild, you know, not a tame lion. That's a beautiful way to think of God, which is exactly what Lewis was seeking to communicate. He is good, but he is not safe. He is good, but he is not tame. He will not be domesticated. He is gracious, but he must be feared. He is full of mercy, but he isn't safe, and he can't be tied down. This is a lesson, this lesson that Lewis was seeking to teach children through his story. This is the lesson that Israel has to learn. It's really a lesson the Philistines have to learn as well. They're going to learn a thing or two about Yahweh as well by the time this story is over. They're going to see Yahweh, the God of Israel, is not to be trifled with. He must be taken seriously. And those who take him lightly will experience the heaviness of his hand. The full and unbearable weight of his glory will crush them if they treat him lightly. Well, let's look at what happens here. The Philistines have captured the Ark on the field of battle. They think they have won this great victory. They take the Ark to the temple of their god Dagon, as if Dagon has now enslaved Yahweh. But what happens there when the the Ark is set up in the temple of Dagon? The Ark not only humbles Dagon and disarms Dagon, the Ark plagues the Philistines with tumors of some sort. And so after seven months of this, passing the Ark from one Philistine city to the next, kind of like a hot potato that now nobody wants, uh, as the Ark is being passed around with the same disastrous results in every Philistine city, the Philistines decide it's time to send the Ark back. This time they don't go to their lords, the political leaders, they go to their priests the religious leaders and the philistines call upon their priests asking what shall we do with the ark of the lord tell us how we should send it back to its place in verse three uh, the priests say don't send it away empty but return it with a trespass offering then you will be healed and his hand will be known to you see they have Deduced, or at least they are uh, hypothesizing that Dagon's fall in his temple and then the plagues that have come upon them, this must be the work of Yahweh, or so it would seem. Now, I think one of the really interesting things to catch here, I've talked about how this is the exile of the ark. Well, it's also the exodus of the ark and there are a lot of clues, there are a lot of echoes of the book of Exodus here in this story. There are certain verbal clues that connect this story with the Exodus. So those words, send away, when they talk about sending away the ark, those words were used several times, that same expression, that was used for Pharaoh's dismissal of the Jewish slaves. Send them out of Egypt. It's the same word that's used by Moses in Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, when he stands before Pharaoh and he says, let my people go, that is, send my people away. Uh, the departure of the people from Egypt is paralleled by, and it is analogous to the departure of the ark from Philistia, just like the Israelites were sent away from Egypt, so the ark's going to be sent away from Philistia. Uh, There are other words or key phrases that are repeated. The word smite is used in Exodus 3.20 and in 1 Samuel 5.6 and 5.9. The phrase strike with a plague occurs in Exodus 9 and in 1 Samuel 6. And the phrase destruction of the land is found in Exodus 8 and in 1 Samuel 6. So you've got all these Verbal connections, these verbal allusions. The same language that described the Exodus out of Egypt is being used here to describe the Ark coming back from Philistia. But there's more. Second echo of the Exodus the Ark is to not go back empty handed. Just as the Israelites were sent away with plunder, the Israelites plundered the Egyptians on their way out, leaving with gold and silver and jewelry, so the ark will take plunder back to the promised land. The ark will take back plunder in the form of gold. Objects: five golden rats and tumors according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. There are five great Philistine cities, each with its own lord. They have all been afflicted in some way, and so they'll be represented by a gold tumor and a rat. In fact, it seems there were many more gold rats because it wasn't just for the five Philistine cities. We find out later in the story it's even for the smaller towns and villages. So the ark is going back with plunder, just like the Israelites left Egypt with plunder. A third echo of the Exodus is found in this. Remember, after the Exodus, the sacrificial system is set up. After they leave Egypt, that's when the sacrificial system is inaugurated. Well, the priests say here that they should return the Ark with a sacrifice, that is with a trespass offering. Uh, they don't know the book of Leviticus, of course, so the, the, the Philistine priests don't know how to make a proper trespass offering. But they know some kind of sacrifice, some kind of offering is needed. The, the use of that language of trespass offering suggests that they know they have incurred a debt to Yahweh that needs to be Paid. They've got at least some inkling at this point of the seriousness of human sin in light of Yahweh's holiness, and that's why they include the gold. According to verse 4, the trespass offering is the gold they send back with the ark. So they don't get that right. They don't understand what a trespass offering is, but they at least make an offering. And again, that's an echo of Exodus because after the Exodus, the, the sacrificial system is set up. Another allusion. Verse 5 says that in doing this, they will give glory to the God of Israel. In Exodus 14, so go back to Exodus, God said he would get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. Okay, remember back in chapter 4 when the ark was captured and you had that Israelite woman who asked, Where is the glory? She named her child Ichabod, meaning the glory has de- departed. Where is the glory? The glory has departed because the ark has been captured. Well, now we see where the glory is, where the glory has gone. The glory of God has not disappeared. Yahweh is just as glorious as ever and the Philistines are going to be made to recognize his glory and even in some way to give him glory. There's also this connection every time it refers to the Lord's hand being heavy upon them. Remember that the word for heavy and the word for glory are basically the same word in the Hebrew. So the word glory means heaviness. It means, it it, it describes the Lord as being heavy or the Lord as being weighty. The Lord's hand has been heavy on them or glorious on them. You could read it that way as well. They can be freed from this weight of the Lord's glorious hand, from this weight of glory weighing down on them by giving God the glory. And this includes, of course, sending the ark back. It's interesting. They long for the very thing that Israel mourned over, the departure of the glory. The glory of the Lord is too much for them. But in all of this, just as in the original Exodus, what is the point the Lord is going to put his glory on display? The Lord makes it clear to Pharaoh, that's what the Exodus is ultimately about. Yes, God's redeeming his people and he's overthrowing Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but it's all about putting on display the Lord's glory, his holiness, his strength, his power, his majesty. That's what it's about. That's what this story is about as well. The Lord putting his glory on display. It's another connection. A fifth allusion to the Exodus is found in verse 3. The priests say they will come to know the hand of the Lord in this way as they send the ark back. Knowing the Lord through his mighty acts is a major theme in the book of Exodus. If you go back to Exodus, you'll find several times there. uh, God says he's going to redeem Israel so that Israel will know. God's going to redeem his people out of slavery so they will know and not just so the Israelites will know but also so that Pharaoh and the Egyptians will know so they will know him in Exodus 9 verse 16 he says he is delivering his people so the whole earth may know his power god does this so that he may be known in Exodus that's true and that's true here as well a sixth allusion to the exodus story is found in verse 6 it's the theme of hardening one's heart against the Lord. And here's the Philistines who actually make this comparison themselves. So interesting. The Philistines say, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they departed? See, they know the story of the Exodus and they know they're reliving it in some way. They see the connection and they realize, you know what? We're playing the part of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. We don't want to get destroyed in that kind of way. We better send the ark back home. There are numerous allusions to the original Exodus here in Samuel. And this shows us this is an exile and Exodus story. Now, something else to notice here. Uh, The Philistine priests, while they have... Acknowledged this connection and they've acknowledged the connection between Yahweh and what happened to Dagon and the connection between having the ark and the plagues. They're still a little bit unsure, and so they want to make sure that it re- that, that really is Yahweh who is behind this. Note in verse 5 they say, Perhaps if you do all this, perhaps he will lighten his hand. On you, They're not totally 100% sure that Yahweh is the cause of all their troubles. Maybe it's not the ark. Maybe it's just a coincidence that the plagues broke out at the same time they captured the ark. Maybe it was just coincidence. So they devise a rather ingenious test that will prove definitively whether or not Yahweh is the one who is behind all of this. The priests say... To the people, take a new cart, the one that has not been defiled in any way, a new cart, and take two milk cows, separate the cows from their calves, yoke them to the cart with the ark on it, and see which way they go. The natural instinct will pull the cows back to their calves, That's where they would naturally want to go. But if Yahweh is really sovereign, if he's really in control of all that's happening, if he's really the one behind these plagues, then he will drive the calves towards his home, towards the land of Israel. It's really an ingenious test. The odds are so stacked against the ark going towards Israel that only Yahweh's power could take it that direction. Only if Yahweh is truly sovereign could it happen. Yahweh will have to overcome nature in their view, the natural instinct of the cows. Well, they do this and guess what happens? They carry out the plan and the cows go straight to Beth Shemesh. It's almost like it's a liturgical procession and the cows just start marching in the direction of Beth Shemesh. Beth Shemesh is an Israelite town in the territory of Judah. It's actually a Levitical city. It was seven miles from the Philistine city of Ekron, so it would be the closest fitting place in Israelite territory for the ark to go, and it heads that direction. Verse 12 says the cows turn neither to the right nor to the left as they take the ark home. I'll just tell you this. If you're looking for someone in this story to imitate, imitate the cows. (laughs) They're the only ones that get it right. Okay, How often are we reading a story where the ones you want to imitate are the animals? But here it is the case. They're the most obedient ones in the whole story. They don't turn to the right or to the left. The Philistines get all kinds of things wrong. The Israelites get all, all kinds of things wrong. The cows are faithful. The cows are obedient. So be like these cows. It's as if there is a straight path being made in the desert, a highway for our God, to use the words of Isaiah the prophet in chapter 40 of his book when he describes another greater future exodus still to be accomplished. It's like these cows make a highway through the wilderness straight back to the Levitical city of Beth Shemesh. And the cows are lowing as they go. I think we're told that detail so we will know they're going against their natural inclination But still, they're obeying Yahweh better than Israel has obeyed Yahweh. And when the people of Beth Shemesh, who are out in their fields reaping a harvest, as they see the ark coming, what do they do? They rejoice. This is it. This is what they've longed for. It seems that the exodus of the ark is now complete. The exile has been reversed. The ark is home. The glory has returned. Ichabod is no more. The Philistine lords who have been following this, they've been following along, kind of spying on this to see what happens. They're satisfied, so they go back home. Now, they know Yahweh's power. They know Yahweh is the one who's been behind all of this. The ark's back home, right? Isn't that a wonderful end to the story? Can we now live happily ever after? Well, I suppose it would be great if that was the end of the story. But it is not. There is more. As the ark comes back into the Israelite town of Beth Shemesh, it is the Levites, of course, who handle the ark. They're the right people to do so, uh, as the priestly tribe. They offer sacrifice. The ark came to rest by a giant stone. And they offer sacrifice there. They chop up wood from the cart. They sacrifice the cows, it says, in an ascension offering. All of that sounds great, right? All that sounds really, really good. But there's a problem. Okay, and if, you, you know, if we knew Leviticus really well, we would notice this problem right away. Uh, they sacrifice the cows, but cows are not part of the ascension sacrifice. According to Leviticus chapter one, they should be offering bulls. It is males, not females. that get sacrificed. So that is at least a yellow flag here. It tells us these Levites are being rather careless in how they worship the Lord. And we've already seen what happens when priests are indifferent to the word of the Lord, where they think they can uh, worship God in their own way uh, instead of God's prescribed way. But it gets even worse. Total disaster strikes. Some of the men of Beth Shemesh look into the ark. It says they look at the ark. I think we should take that as they look inside the ark, and what happens? The Lord kills 70 of them. And so these people who were rejoicing over the return of the ark now mourn because 70 men in their city have been struck down by the Lord. See, it was kind of comical back when it was Dagon getting knocked over at night. Uh, You know, Dagon was being mocked. That was kind of comical. It was even kind of comical when it was the Philistines suffering the plague and, 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 and the rats and the tumors and all of that. It was very comical. But it's not comical anymore. It turns tragic. In the way this story is told, it turns tragic. Yes, God has been gracious to his people. He has borne the curse of exile on their behalf. He has spared them a much worse judgment than the one they deserved. But grace does not mean God can be treated lightly. And that's what they do. God is glorious. God is weighty. He is the heavy God. He's he's the the God who must be treated as such with fear, with reverence, with awe. Yes, He is gracious, but He is holy. And that's the lesson they still haven't learned. Chapter 6, verse 19 says there was a great slaughter when the 70 were struck down. It is the same word that was used back in chapter 4 for the great slaughter that Israel experienced on the battlefield. This is the Lord waging war against his own people, just like he did with the Philistines before. Now he simply does it directly on his own. In other words, it's clear here the Israelites still have not learned the lesson they really need to. They have not learned to fear the Lord. They're still presuming upon the grace of God, even as they were before. At the beginning of this chapter, the Philistines ask, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord. At the end of this chapter, the Israelites are asking the same question. Verse 20, who is able to stand before the Lord, before this holy God, and to whom shall we send him? Uh, Like the Philistines, they now want to get rid of the ark. They want to send it on. They can't handle it. They can't handle God's holiness. Instead of saying, you know what, this means we ought to repent and become the kind of people who can stand in the presence of the Lord. They just want to send the ark away. Had they learned Hannah's song back in chapter 2, they probably would have treated the ark with more reverence. It's interesting. Through this whole book, through all of Samuel, really, Hannah's song provides the framework for everything that happens. Hannah's song provides the the framework for every event that happens in this book. Her song keeps coming to fulfillment again and again. It's like it just rolls right through the book and everything that happens in one way or another fulfills Hannah's song. So in chapter two, verse 10, Hannah's saying this, in chapter two, verse 10, Hannah's saying, there is alone, there's no other God like the Lord. There is none holy like the Lord. In her song, chapter 2, verse 10, she sang about the Lord's unique holiness. In a sense, calling on the people to respect his holiness, saying there is no other God like Yahweh. Earlier in her song, in verses 6 and 7, she's saying the Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. The Lord brings low and the Lord exalts. This is exactly what the people of Beth Shemesh are experiencing, exactly what they should be learning. The Lord kills those who don't reverence Him, He brings low those who pridefully presume upon His grace. The Lord will not be mocked, He will not be taken advantage of. He is gracious but not indulgent. He is merciful but also holy. He is trustworthy, He's reliable. But that means not only do his promises come to fulfillment, it also means his threats come to fulfillment as well. And there are threats all over the Bible. We probably uh, have a habit of screening them out. Maybe we don't quite know what to do with them. But there are threats all over the scripture, threats that God gives to his own people, warnings that God gives to his own people. This is not just an old covenant thing. The New Testament is full of threats God makes against his own people as well. Just read the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is full of threats against the church. If the church is not faithful, if the church does not continue to pursue holiness, Hebrews is full of threats. Read the letters that Jesus dictated to John in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Full of threats against these churches. They'll take their candlestand away. He'll take their light away if they're not faithful, if they don't repent. Romans is full of threats. In Romans chapter 11, Paul reminds us to consider both the kindness and severity of God. We must remember the goodness and the terribleness of God. In the original Exodus, God delivered his people really for two reasons. So that the Egyptians would come to fear him and so his own people would come to fear him. In Exodus chapter 9, the Lord says to Pharaoh through Moses, For this purpose I raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. The Lord is doing what he's doing in the Exodus, bringing destruction to Pharaoh and his hosts, bringing salvation to his people because he wants the whole earth to know his power and to fear him. In Exodus chapter 14, when uh, the Israelites have come out of Egypt, when they have uh, crossed through the Red Sea on dry ground, the text says Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians and so the people feared the Lord, and believed the Lord. When they saw what the Lord had done, how he had saved them, what did they do? They feared him. God's power leads us to fear him. God's holiness leads us to fear him. God's grace leads us to fear him. This fear is reverence and respect. It is honor and awe, all mixed with humble trust and joy. Grace inculcates fear the salvation of the Lord leads to the fear of the Lord that's the meaning of this if you fear God you will have high regard for his word and you will seek to obey it that is why fear that's why Proverbs tells us the fear of the Lord leads to wisdom because if you fear God you'll heed his word and his word is the way to wisdom This fear leads to worship. It's interesting, in Exodus 14, right after they've been delivered through the Red Sea and it says they fear the Lord, what do they do next? They sing the song of Moses, a song of worship, a song of joyous praise. This is how their fear comes to expression in worship. See, the point of this story in 1 Samuel is to teach us that God is to be feared. He is good, yes. He is gracious, yes. He goes into exile for his people. That is grace. That is mercy, but he is also dangerous. He's always gracious, but he's never safe. He loves, but he loves with a severe love, a holy love. Go back to Narnia. Again, when the children uh, meet Aslan for the first time, they are simply overwhelmed. And I think Lewis here is trying to capture something of the experience of what it means to come to know the true and the living God. This is how it's described when the children first meet Narnia, first meet Aslan in Narnia. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great royal solemn overwhelming eyes and they found they couldn't look at him and went all trembling they looked upon him and they loved him but also feared him at the same time at the end of the story when Aslan has won the great victory and 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 those who have sinned against him are being forgiven they're celebrating this and this is how Lewis describes it as the children play with Aslan whether it was more like playing with a thunderstorm or playing with a kitten, Lucy could never make up her mind. See, when you are engaging with God, you are playing with a thunderstorm. God is good, God is gracious, and we need to know that. But we also need to see God is dangerous, God is to be feared. The same thing we see with the ark. We see with the ark's fulfillment in Jesus. This really points us, of course, to Jesus. Think about the character of Jesus. Jesus is full of compassion. He's full of mercy. He's full of love. He ate and drank with sinners. He forgave sinners. He befriended sinners. All of that is good news, right? We want to hear that. We need to know that. That Jesus has this amazing compassion towards sinners. He's constantly forgiving the worst of sinners who come to him. But this same Jesus is dangerous. This same Jesus could never be tamed or domesticated. He is not a tame lion. Jesus was never safe. And so he goes into the temple and he turns over tables. He tells the Pharisees, Oh, you think you're sons of Abraham. You're really sons of Satan. You're sons of the devil. You're sons of the serpent. His disciples would object to something he was doing and he would override those objections again and again and again. Jesus made it clear he will judge sin. He will, he is the judge. He will also stop at nothing to forgive our sins and save us from our sins. No question there. He is gracious. He is merciful, but He's also holy. holy. He's a very embodiment of God's holiness, and He calls us away from our sin as well. Now, if that sounds paradoxical to you, it should. There is a paradox here, a, a mystery that we can't fully unravel. Jesus is the lion and the lamb, He is full of grace and truth. He's, Gracious, yes, and he's ready to forgive sins. He's more ready to forgive sins than we are to seek forgiveness. He is a forgiving and compassionate Savior, but he is also holy and he will judge sins and he calls upon us to fear him. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter two that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling even as God works in us. We work out what God works in. God is working his salvation in us. But we work this salvation out with fear and trembling. That's why the Westminster Confession, when it talks about saving faith, says that saving faith acts upon each passage of Scripture in an appropriate way. When when we're reading through the Bible and we come to a command, faith wants to obey that command. When we're reading through the Bible and we come to a promise, faith wants to claim that promise. And when we come to a threat, a warning in Scripture, what does faith do? The Westminster Confession tells us faith trembles at the threatenings. We take them seriously. Now, I want to ask you a question Do you think most of the church in America today sees God? in this way. Certainly people out in the culture don't see God this way. If you talk, you know, most people are not atheists. They they have some kind of god they would say they believe in. Ask them to describe their god, and when they get done, ask yourself, is the god they have described a god worthy of fearing? Is that a god you would fear? I would guess the answer to that question is almost always no. And if they describe for you a God who is not worthy of fear, they have not described the true and the living God. There are all kinds of distorted views of God out there in the world around us. But you know what? Those distorted views of God often make their way into the church as well. There are some like the Philistines who want to defy God and who think they can control him. There are others like the Israelites who want to presume upon him and take advantage of him. But again, a God who is not worthy of fear is simply an idol. The only right way to relate to God is to trust him and obey him. It is to love him and to fear him. Who can stand before this holy God? Who? Those who fear God. Those who repent of their sin. Those who trust him. Those who seek to obey him. All manifestations of the fear of God. Who can stand before the presence of this holy God, those who know he is holy, and those who fear him? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.